A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello and welcome to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. My name is Sarah Collette and tonight I am joined by um, Dr. Brian C. Hales. Brian has written a um, series, a three-volume series of books, Joseph's Miss Polygamy. And today we're going to be speaking about um, his experience writing these books, some of his personal perspectives and um, his come from, but also we're going to get into the details of polygamy during Joseph Smith's life. We're going to address some of the difficult issues, and I'm really excited about this interview. Welcome. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. First of all, let me give you a little introduction into um, Brian's career. He is a board-certified anesthesiologist in Layton, Utah, graduated from Utah State University with a BS in biology, and from the University of Utah College of Medicine. Um, this book is his eighth. Uh, his Modern Polygamy and Mormon Fundamentalism, The Generations After the Manifesto, was published by um, Cofford Books in 2007 and was awarded the Best Book of 2007 Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Um, you're a active member of the church, a return missionary, and um, what, what's your calling currently? Um, I serve as the high priest group instructor, at least one of them. Okay, great. So um, you're coming from a uh, a faithful testimony. Or do you consider yourself a full believer in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Yes, I do, um, which is a little unique because so many who have uh, investigated polygamy sometimes uh, lose some faith. Right. Do you consider yourself an apologist for the Church? Well, I am a believer, and if that makes me an apologist, then then I guess I would carry the title. I don't particularly like labels, uh, though I, I must confess this past week on Facebook, somebody called me the Sandra Tanner of apologists with respect to polygamy, and I, I know Sandra a little bit, and she's a very nice lady. I don't mean, I don't think they're trying to criticize her, but um, I would like to think of myself more as a researcher first, a researcher second, researcher third, maybe an apologist fourth. Okay. Uh, the, it's to, it, the goal is to be objective. Uh, otherwise, you, you aren't going to be very effective. Do you feel like um, you have accomplished something with these books that has not yet been accomplished? I mean, do you feel as though this is new ground? Yeah, I think, uh, well, on several fronts, we've we've been able to advance the, the scholarship and the, uh, the number of documents that are available. Um, Don Bradley, who has uh, helped me with volumes one and two, um, is a a research assistant that I hired for a couple of years, and he logged 15, over 1,500 hours going around and, and gathering up every known document, 
whether it came from anti-Mormons or apologists or anybody in between. And I've tried to put every single one of them within the covers of these three volumes. So that if, if somebody, they may not agree with my interpretation, but I'm hopeful that they'll have the transcript right there and that they can look and see why I've concluded what I have. Or they may disagree, but at least they'll be working from the primary documents and not somebody else's uh, perspective and opinion. Has the church been, I mean, have you worked a lot with the church? Have they cooperated with your um, research at all? I mean, have you had to interact with them in terms of archives and, and digging? Have they been willing to open the archives to you? Yes. You know, we've, we've never been denied a single thing that we've asked for over there. And by we, I mean Don and I. And we got into some documents that nobody has looked at. Um, Don, Todd Compton didn't see them. Um, Mike Quinn, nobody. Um, in the Andrew Jensen uh, papers, and, and Don Bradley tells a little story about how he he heard the still small voice of, of Robin Jensen, who was one of the archivists there, uh, whisper, look up this number, which led us right to the Andrew Jensen collection, where there's some very significant documents in there that help us understand what was going on in Alvin. Do you think that um, that maybe some of the um, brethren of the of the church know about, I mean, did they know about this project and do you, have they been aware at all that this is occurring, that these books are being, are being written? I had met, um, with Elder Jensen, Marlon K. Jensen, uh, a couple of times looking, asking for permission, which was always granted. Rick Turley was there uh, most of the time. Um, whether anyone other than the church historian uh, knew, I, I, I can't say. I haven't met with Elder Snow, though, Everybody tells me he's great, and I don't expect there would be any change there. In your personal life, have you met any opposition in this project? Have people been skeptical of your motives at all? Um, early on, people were, were worried about why you're, you're wanting to uh, study polygamy. And, and actually, a, a member of my family joined the Allred group years ago, and that's what kind of got me focused on it. And uh, she has since left them completely. And uh, she's great. I, I love her. I see her all the time. Um, but that's where my interest came. And I wrote, wrote three books that deal with fundamentalist polygamy. But about half the questions people were asking me dealt with Joseph Smith's polygamy. I couldn't answer those. And even though we had books like Todd Compton's and Sacred Loneliness, and Todd did an amazing amount of, of research, um, the, the answers just still weren't there. And, and so... Uh, about five years ago, it's been a five-year project, I jumped back in and uh, tried to get a, my head around some of these questions that I couldn't answer and I didn't think anybody else could. When this family member joined um, the All Red Group, did that cause any kind of uh, crisis of faith in you personally? Well, I, I don't know if I'm proud to say this, but I, I prayed the prayer, Heavenly Father, if this fundamentalist stuff is the right thing for me, tell me. And from the very, very beginning, I could never get comfortable with their priesthood claims. And my books uh, all deal with their line of authority. And I know that's not the topic here, but um, I would challenge anyone who thinks that they can practice polygamy today to look at their authority because um, it tells us very plainly in section 132, verse 18, that even if you have the prayer right and you're sincere and it's the tradition, um, you, you, it won't be valid unless it's authorized by the one man who holds the authority. I find that interesting that you, that you were willing to consider um, a prayer about truthfulness for a fundamentalist group. Um, do you mind talking a little bit about 
what your thought process was when you were looking at, um, you know, at the, the Church of Jesus Christ versus this fundamentalist group? Did you, you, you obviously had a question about whether or not they were valid. Do you mind giving us a little bit of insight into your state of mind at that time? Well, at the time, I, I didn't have the knowledge base that I have now or the experience with the Spirit, which is a very real phenomenon for me. Um, but when a, a, a dear family member, you know, takes that trek, um, almost out of respect, you, you want to look at it. And and uh, and I can't say that I, I dwelt a long time there because I had a testimony or I thought, but of course, if you talk to the, the Mormon fundamentalists, they'll kind of tell you that they're just a higher level of what I already had. Um, and, and so you may not feel like you're rejecting your, your roots, um, by considering it, but I, I, I briefly entertained that possibility. But again, the, from the get go, I was worried about their authority. So, um, having that perspective, that familial perspective of having, you know, um, a, a personal connection to polygamy, did you at that point wonder if, um, possibly polygamy was a problem from the church for the church, or did you always assume that it was ordained of God? You know, I think, um, I was like probably most members in that I just hadn't thought about it that much. Um, if it was a higher law, then of course I was ready to make the sacrifice. And, and that's the, the bluer than blue kind of feeling that a lot of the fundamentalists that I know have reflected. They'll, they'll do anything for God and, and somehow this has become it. And they don't worry so much about the theology and, and as I've said, the authority issues that, that should be paramount in their minds. They just are willing to make that sacrifice. And if that means moving down to Colorado City or to Texas or to, to give up their family and, and head up to Bitterroot, Montana or something, they're willing to do it because it's all for God. I'm, I'm wondering at this point, sitting here today, would you say to someone maybe who's asking questions about the doctrine of the church that you would, that you believe that polygamy is part of our celestial future? Well, uh, excellent question that, that deserves more attention probably than we give it, but it in it's gospel meat. And this is why we don't hear it talked about. And I don't think we ever will see it in the Enzyme or the church news or in gospel doctrine. But the reality is, and it, it isn't necessarily that complex, but when Joseph Smith taught that exalted beings are married, um, you almost had to have some form of polygamy unless there were equal numbers of worthy women and men. And section 132, the revelation on celestial marriage, provides for there being more worthy women than men which each of these women would need a spouse sealed to them or else they could not be exalted in Joseph Smith's theology. So I believe that it was absolutely necessary the second Joseph introduced uh, eternal marriage as as the only uh, state in the top of the celestial kingdom that some form of plural marriage uh, was going to come along. Um, I personally do not believe that every uh, man in the celestial kingdom is a polygamist. There's not enough extra worthy women to go around. When people say everybody's going to have to share their husband in eternity, I don't. I just don't believe that. There will be polygamy there. There has to be because every one of the women there needs to have a husband. But I, I just don't see that every every woman's going to be sharing her husband, and especially if she doesn't want to. 
So, and I don't mean to be cheeky when I say this at all, but um, following that line of logic, if there were more men then in this celestial kingdom than women, um, would the reverse be acceptable? <laughs> well, it's the natural thought, and, and let's be fair. Um, I, I should maybe, as an aside, just say I think um, polygamy, which is in the in the form of polygyny. Polygyny means one husband, multiple wives. And the term, and I think we're going to talk about it more in a minute, is polyandry, where a woman has more than one husband. Um, but polygyny um, is very sexist and unfair. It, the um, The man is expanding his sexual and emotional opportunities as a husband simultaneously as the new wife uh, her opportunities that are sexual and emotional are fragmented as a wife uh, through plural marriage. And here on earth, I just don't think you can call that fair. Uh, it, I think it's quite unfair and, and sexist. So it's hard to justify it, uh, I think, here. And I don't mean to be critical of it, but I see it as a necessity from a theological standpoint. To, uh, to open the possibility for the reverse to be true in the celestial kingdom. Is that what you're saying? Um, well, and I really didn't address your question on that, but with respect to polyandry, all we can say is that uh, Section 132 um, allows a man to have more than one wife, and it does it for her exaltation in the eternal worlds. That's, that's what it is. Uh, that's what's stated there for her, but it lists three situations of polyandry and calls them all adultery, and in two cases, the woman will be destroyed. So all we can say is that Section 132 allows there to be more worthy women than men at the final judgment. And we can do the what-ifs, but there's just no, no place in that revelation for there to be more worthy men. And if you go into any congregation of, uh, today, you will, you will see in any Christian congregation, there's usually more women than men. Um, however, there, there is an observation that for every 100 female babies, there are 105 males. And I've had people tell me, see, there's going to be more worthy men. The problem with that is that the data that they're drawing from is only 150, and if you want to be real generous, 300 years old. And we can't say why it's happening, so it could be a cyclic phenomenon that 600 years or 1,000 years ago, it was exactly the opposite. Um, so, again, we're just left with the observation that women seem to be more susceptible, and both Joseph Smith and Brigham Young made that observation in their, in their comments. Um, but that's the only scenario that is provided for in Section 132. So you're talking about 1 Section 32 in terms of it's, it's a revelation of um, perhaps um, looking into the future and predicting the imbalance of women and men that enter the celestial kingdom. So it's revelatory in that way. I've, I've never heard it expressed that way, so I, I find that interesting. Um, and I have to say, right off the bat, um, as a woman sitting, speaking to a man about who, who possibly might defend um, some of the more difficult aspects of polygamy, um, it's hard sometimes to trust um, the motives of men who defend polygamy, have you encountered that kind of resistance from women more than you have from men? Well, it's a natural phenomenon, Sarah. And quite honestly, it's, it's not unexpected because if you ask the question, why did Joseph Smith establish polygamy? Um, there's really two answers. That's all there really is. One is God commanded him to do it. The other is libido. Mm -hmm. That's it. 
And the only people who can believe that God commanded him to do it are the ones who believe God was talking to him in the first place. That's not very many people. That's not even all Latter-day Saints. I've had Latter-day Saints come up to me and, and, and just think it was libido and, and that Joseph got tired later in life and there's all these rationalizations. So when um, writers who are not believers uh, you know, portray Joseph as, as wanting uh, to ex increase his sexual opportunities. And so he brings in polygamy and, and oh, he's got his eye on some of these married women. So he brings in polyandry and that's the storyline. We're not surprised by that. But what I'm hoping through these books that, that are now being, that I've, I've authored is that they will hear the story from the view of the Nauvoo polygamists. And that's a story that has not been told by anybody, because if any of the Nauvoo polygamists, and there were 114, by my calculation, 114 men and women had entered into polygamous marriages at the time of the martyrdom. If any of those men and women had thought Joseph was after sex, they'd have dumped him in a second, and a bunch of them, I think, would have rebelled against him. So you see, we have two storylines that are coming out of there, one of which we haven't heard. It's from the, the people who were participating. They were just as skeptical as you and I are. They they weren't these, these gullible dupes that are portrayed by Fawn Brody and so many others that, oh, Joseph, yes, we'll do polygamy because you're so wonderful and you're a prophet. That wasn't it at all. It was a hard sell, and they had to go to God, many of them, to get their own testimony. So it's a, it's a new story, and I'm hoping people will appreciate it. They may not believe it. They may not think, oh yeah, I guess Joseph was a prophet and God did command it, but at least they'll understand that the, the view they've been given by the Fon Brodies of the world is not accurately portray what happened. Do you feel that there is room for an LDS person to believe in a, um, a, a restoration prophet Joseph Smith being called of God, transferring or translating the Book of Mormon, um, establishing a church who also was a flawed man who maybe made mistakes with polygamy. Do you think that there is room for LDS people to believe in that? And, and, or do you think that it is necessary for LDS people to, um, harmonize polygamy as a, as a, um, commandment from God with a rest restoration prophet? Um, is, is it possible Joseph was flawed and stumbled uh, on this issue? Um, for me, it, it's, it's a non-issue because if, if we can just understand the theology, and you, your eyebrows raised when I mentioned that, that we had to have polygamy when we learned about exaltation occurs to couples, that is our theology now, but we don't talk about it much. And this is something where we'll get a lot of pushback, but I want to fast forward five or ten years from now. I really think if people will simply read section 132, they will see that is exactly what it says. It tells us that if a, if a person is not sealed in an eternal marriage, that person will live separately and singly without exaltation in in a saved condition to all eternity. That's, that's the, and that's celestial, that's terrestrial, that's the lower celestial. And so everybody needs a, a spouse. And this is an interesting thing because the question that, that caused section 132 to be written was about polygamy. And so God first talks about authority. That's verses seven through, um, I don't know, 15 or so. And then he comes back to it a little later, but then we have him telling us everybody needs to be sealed to a spouse. Now, what has that got to do with plural marriage? Well, it, it seems pretty obvious that it allows all worthy women, and apparently there will be more, 
to have an eternal spouse. And then later on, after verse 34, we get into polygamy itself. But if you look at how that section is structured, we ask about polygamy, and then suddenly we're, it's, it's talking about authority. It's talking about you got to have a spouse. And then it allows, in verse 19, a monogamous couple to become um, to, to have godhood, to have all of the exaltation. Polygamy is not part of it. We find the fundamentalists don't quote from section 132 very often. And they don't quote verse 19 because it has all of the promises to a man who marries a woman by proper authority and they live worthily. So anyway, in answer to your question, if somebody wants to believe it that way, as long as they're keeping their covenants and being obedient, fine. But if we can understand the theology, plural marriage fits right in there. It's not the zenith doctrine, as some people have said. It's just a necessary component. Without plural marriage, billions of monogamous couples can still be exalted, according to Joseph Smith's theology. And maybe I should just add one other thing. Joseph didn't have to give us all this theology. Um, there were Abraham and Jacob. These are great prophets of the Old Testament. They were polygamists. Abraham was a friend of God. But we find no theology anywhere in the Old Testament. Joseph didn't have to give us any theology. All he had to do was say, I'm a prophet restorer. I'm restoring polygamy. We're doing it. That's all he had to say. Instead, he gives us a lot of theology where polygamy is one element, a necessary element, but certainly not the primary element. If if a member of the church believes that um, that Joseph Smith possibly erred in practicing polygamy, but that he was a restoration prophet, that that can fit within the doctrine of one thirty two, because they choose to believe in a monog like um, one man and wife entering the celestial kingdom. Am I getting that right? Um. I, I guess I would not agree with, okay. with it if I understand you, because if you read 132, you get a theological explanation that just makes so much more sense than saying Joseph blew it okay. or stumbled. Um, it's the person who doesn't understand section 132 who chooses that that uh, belief. And, and that's okay, as like I say, as long as they keep their covenants and, and all, I, I don't know that it would be a problem. I'm, I'm not their judge. <laughs> okay. So now let's go and address this issue of... When you mentioned that in Nauvoo, these people were not gullible, that Joseph didn't pull the wool over their eyes and they were in awe of him. And so they, they practiced polygamy for that reason, but that they were smart and it was difficult and it challenged their faith. And I wanted to ask that, that question, there were also those who, um, were given the challenge of polygamy, um, for example, Sidney Rigdon's daughter is an, is an example presented with that um, possibility, and she rejected it. There, there are others as well who were presented with a challenge, and it pushed their faith too far. They, 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 found, um, they found instead, they, they went in the direction instead that Joseph Smith was erring and flawed in that way. Do you address that in this book at all? Yeah, we go through every one of those episodes. And the, the Nancy Rigdon, um, I, I have all of the accounts, I think, that anybody ever left that deal with that. And it appears Joseph did approach her, which is curious because she obviously rejected him outright. There was just no chance she was going to accept this. But Joseph still chose her, and I think he was going after Sydney. I think he chose Nancy, hoping she'd accept, and then through that he could introduce this principle to Sydney, because Sydney did not ever, I think, ever sit down with Joseph and learn about it. He never, Joseph never did that with her, but she did reject it. We don't. Uh, I mean, she stayed, I believe, with her father after the split, 
but she she was younger. She couldn't exactly leave town, but she didn't come out. In fact, her spokesman was her dad who came out and actually kind of defended Joseph uh, later on with that. So even though she rejected Joseph as a plural husband, how much of the doctrine she was re also rejecting, I'm, I'm not sure we know. So you're saying that perhaps she wasn't as informed of um, the doctrine that Joseph Smith was introducing along with the invitation to be a plural wife. Is that, is, am I getting that right? Well, I think she was just outright uh, de declining polygamy. Uh, and, okay. and whether Joseph taught her at that point, the revelation hadn't been written. So how much theology Joseph was giving these people um, at that stage, we don't know. It is interesting that Joseph wrote a letter to her to try to convince her. But when you read the letter, I mean, it's not a love letter. It's like, it's not like, I really care for you, Nancy. Come be my plural wife and, and, you know, you'll have all the stature because I'm the church president and I love you so much and, and we'll, you know, we'll have a happy family together. There's none of that. It's all theological. It's like he's writing at least partly to Sydney, the father. And, uh, and we don't, I, I'm not even sure how much Nancy would have understood. There are some references in there I'm sure she didn't get, but Sydney would have. I'm just going to voice some of these um, questions that I have from a personal come from. But one of the things that I struggled with uh, as I began to address um, this topic in my own life was that it was hard for me uh, from the perspective of a woman to think in terms of a man commanding, and maybe commanding is not the right word, but from the perspective of a prophet telling a woman, God wants you to to be my, my wife, that somehow that, um, that lends itself to a feeling of an abuse of power just because women tend to be, um, put in positions that, uh, where men are in a position of authority over them. It limits choice to some degree to be told that God is commanding you to do something without having, um, the freedom to approach God, um, on your own and find that out. So I, I feel slightly uncomfortable with that a lot of the time. And even when I read in the Doctrine and Covenants and Joseph Smith, um, issues a commandment, I always, I always wonder about that. How do you feel about that? Um, Lorenzo Snow, when he, uh, testified before the Temple Lot uh, case in 1892, explained that as soon as a person learned about the commandment in Nauvoo, Joseph, of course, learned about it. We don't know exactly when, but his first plural marriage was, was early 1841. But as soon as Joseph told somebody about the commandment, they were expected to obey it. But if they hadn't heard about it, of course, they, they wouldn't have. And the one, one question that still is in my mind after all of the research that I've done, there's still only one thing that still kind of makes me wonder, and that is why did God command it? I mean, you and I have been talking about why it was permitted, why it was needed, why we need to have plural marriage in the celestial kingdom, uh, or at least according to section 132. What we haven't talked about is why did God command it? It created huge problems. Joseph didn't want to do it, by the way. Um, and so we, we don't have an answer for that. At least I don't. We can speculate God wanted, you know, more children born or something like that, but I don't have a good answer for that. Um, what is interesting, though, is that Joseph taught, and Lucy Walker, one of his plural wives, said that Joseph taught that a woman gets to have her choice. Now, we have one or two accounts where Joseph is telling them, God has given you to me, and that is what, that is what obedience requires. One of those women was Mary Elizabeth Rollins, 
And it, it's kind of a fun story because she relates how when Joseph said that, she asked Joseph, well, how do you know this is true and from God? And and, and Joseph said, well, an angel com- commanded me to do it. And she says, well, how do you know it wasn't an angel from the devil? And Joseph said, well, I've learned how to tell the difference. And she goes, well, then if an angel came to you, why can't an angel come to me? And uh, Joseph stopped and he, he thought for a minute, according to, to the account. And he says, okay, you will have an angel come to you. And then several nights later, she is awakened in her bed as she recounts all of this. She sees an angel that comes in through the window, stands at the the, uh, foot of her bed. At this point, she's scared to death. She says she hides under the covers and and the angel waits there for a minute and then it leaves. Well, a couple of days later, Joseph sees Mary Elizabeth Rollins and says, well, have you had your visit from the angel? The angel told me that he would come to you. And she goes, well, I saw something I'd never seen before, and I saw an angel come into the room, but I hid under the covers. And Joseph said, how could you be such a coward? And she says, well, I was afraid. Will the angel come again? And uh, Joseph thought for a minute, he goes, no, that angel won't come, but you'll have other manifestations, which she relates there. But you can just see, I relate this story because they were just as skeptical as you and I today. And and the general policy was not that Joseph would, would issue uh, commands to these women. In fact, we know of five women who turned him down. And there was nothing against these women. We wouldn't even have known that Joseph had proposed to them if they didn't later tell the story. Because jo- there, are, there are some people saying if, if a woman turned Joseph down, she, he would destroy their reputation. And that is simply not true in the general, in the general sense. There, we do have Sarah Pratt and Nancy Rigdon who, who made it public and Joseph responded to the, their public uh, declarations. But generally, if somebody turned him down, he just moved on and and uh, and didn't have anything against them. So uh, that story that you tell, is that a firsthand account? Did she write that in her personal journal? And do we have records of that story? Or was it secondhand? She told that to someone else who wrote it down. What's the source of that? Excellent, excellent question. And, and I'm hopeful that as we get into polygamy and people start researching it, they will ask that question of every document that comes in front of them. This is a firsthand account recorded when she uh, presented it, and I think it was before a missionary group at BYU in 1905. But Mary Elizabeth Rollins lived, outlived all of the wives, um, if I remember correctly. Anyway, it was 1910 or 1913 she died, and so she left us a number of accounts. They're all firsthand. Okay. And she tells the same story at different times. So you had mentioned that Joseph Smith did not want to practice polygamy. What sources do you have to back that up? And and are they firsthand accounts? And, and why? what has helped you form the opinion that he, he did not want to practice polygamy? Again, a great question. Joseph Smith received the sealing authority in 1836 in the Kirtland Temple. That sealing authority allows a man and a woman to be sealed in eternal marriage. And then if you want to make polygamy, you just repeat it. There is no ceremony for a polygamous marriage. It's exactly the same as a monogamous. It's just between a different woman and the same man. But what's interesting is even though Joseph Smith received the authority in 1836, he did not use it until 1841. Five years. Richard Bushman said this is very uncharacteristic for Joseph. He was aggressive in moving forward with religious things. I personally believe, and I make this argument in my book, that the reason is that he knew that if if a, a man could be sealed to a dead wife like Hiram Smith's first wife, Hiram is Joseph's brother, but also sealed to a living wife, which would make him a polygamist in eternity, then how quickly is somebody going to ask the question, well, can we be sealed to two living wives? 
The answer was yes. I don't think Joseph wanted to go there. Joseph did have a plural marriage in Kirtland, Fanny Alger, and it blew up in his face. It could not have turned out worse for him. I don't think he wanted to do this again. And so he, he sat on the authority. He didn't talk about it. Nobody knew there. He recorded some things contemporaneously. So we know that he, he had the visit from, from Elijah in 1836. He says nothing about it. In fact, in his entire time in Nauvoo, he never says, yeah, I got the sealing authority from Elijah. He never tells his audience that so far as we have any uh, public record. Okay. So this is in, this is information that I have not necessarily, um, encountered or considered. So what you're saying is that the revelation that he receives from Elijah, the sealing power is actually when he received the authority to practice polygamy because it allows for a woman and a man to be sealed. And so that opens the possibility. It it doesn't limit it to just one woman. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Now, God has to allow us to practice plural marriage. Like the Manifesto of 1890 removed the commandment. The Manifesto of 1904 removed permission. And and I talk about this in my fundamentalist book. Um, but whether Joseph was authorized to use the sealing authority in 1836 to seal a, a man to a second wife, we don't know. We know so little about what he was thinking about you know that authority because it is not mentioned until 1841. When uh, he gives that authority to Joseph Noble to perform a marriage between Joseph Smith and uh, Joseph Noble's sister-in-law, um, Louisa or Louisa Beeman. So was Louisa Beeman the first wife after Fanny Alger? I mean, the first polygamous wife after Fanny Alger? I believe yes, and I make strong arguments to that. If you read Compton, if you read Von Brody and, and multiple other authors, they want to plug in Lucinda Pendleton and several other women in between there. The evidence for those marriages um, or even relationships, I think, is not strong. And why not? Why isn't it strong? Well, the documentation just isn't there. I mean, they're, they're, they're finding, uh, for example, Lucinda Pendleton, there is nothing to say there was a marriage. All we know is that Joseph stayed at their home for a few weeks, and then there's some evidence that at some point they were married. And if they were sealed together, Joseph Smith and Lucinda Pendleton, I believe it was later in Nauvoo. But it's just speculation because there's just no data. Okay, so there's no actual documentation until, and tell me her name again, until... Uh, Louisa B. Louisa, okay. So... Um, what is the documentation for Fanny Alger? What do we have that proves that he did enter into a polygamous marriage with Fanny Alger? I have accumulated, and it's in one of my appendices, um, 19 references to that relationship. And uh, I think that's all there is. It'd be great if we could find some more. So you researchers out there, you know, go for it. But it, I think it's every one. Most of these are late. Four of them are uh, the earliest account is 1838. I believe the marriage occurred in 35, so nobody's talking about it in any venue that we can identify for three years, um, or at least it's been uh, retained in the historical record. And then we've got two or three other record uh, individuals who refer to it between 1838 and 42, and then there's nothing until 1872 where we have 15 more references. People are re recalling what happened. If you go to my website, josephsmithspolygamy.com, and click on Fanny Alger, you'll be led to a chart where I've put those 19 evidences and other observations, um, and, and I've classified some of them as supporting a plural marriage and others that say it was adultery. And Oliver Cowdery and Emma Smith clearly did not believe it was a legitimate marriage. And that, and they've got accounts there, and you can read, read about those. 
But there's some very significant evidence, and some of it's new from the Andrew Jensen papers, that it was a marriage, and it comes from the hand of Eliza R. Snow. Um, Andrew Jensen, uh, who was a, he was an independent historian, but he later became an assistant historian. He was interviewing Eliza Snow in 1887, and he uh, asked her about Fanny. Well, we come to, come to learn from his notes that Eliza was there when the whole episode blew up and that she was well acquainted with, uh, with Fanny. And what's interesting is that Andrew Jensen was making a list of all of the wives, and he had met with Melissa Lott and had 13 names on a paper. And apparently in the interview, he took that paper and handed it to Eliza, and Eliza added 13 more names, Fanny Alger's name being one of them. And I would argue that if Fanny Alger had just been in an adulterous relationship, that Eliza would have been very interested in just hushing that up completely. The fact that she included uh, Fanny's name on that paper as a plural wife of Joseph Smith, and the fact that she was well acquainted with Fanny, she was there in uh, Kirtland in the spring of 1836 when, the, when it was made known and became a problem, I think that's a strong evidence that it was a plural marriage. And this is a new thing. Uh, Don Bradley is the one who discovered the handwriting. So... Um some people would feel as though um, the revelation where Elijah comes to Joseph Smith and Kirtland Temple um, and, and gives the sealing power, to interpret that as, as permission to practice polygamy is a stretch. Do you believe that Joseph Smith got something additional that he didn't include or that there is some type of personal interaction that Joseph Smith might have had with the Lord that he did not give in addition to that that would indicate a a direction in polygamy or do you feel that 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 was the extent that he received and he interpreted that spiritually as a direct that that the possibility of polygamy could move you know that that could be a direction that the lord was indicating yeah great great question um and something i failed to mention um sarah is that uh joseph smith related to nine individuals in nauvoo and we have 22 accounts that an angel appeared with a sword to command him to practice it. And when? When did he say this angel appeared? Only, only one of the witnesses, and it's Mary Elizabeth Rollins again, gives us a date. Okay. And she tells us that the angel came three times. The first was in 1834, according to her. And she said it more than once. But she is the only one who gave us dates. But she was a plural wife, so she was close enough to know. But... Uh, that's why I think the Fanny Alger marriage was after that date. We don't know when the second one came, but the third visit, and it was only the third visit that the angel had the sword, that was in February of 1842, early of, of that. So Joseph got the authority, and, and I'm guessing at that point he'd, he'd already tried plural marriage, so he, he may have suspected that, in fact, that authority could be used for eternal polygamy, but we don't have any record. And I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it was authority for polygamy, even though it, it, it turns out it was. But sometime between that point and the first plural marriage in Nauvoo to Louisa Beeman in, in April of 1830, 1841, I, I assume the second angel visit came and Joseph was told to do this. And that's why he went ahead with Louisa. Okay. So that is that those are those nine accounts are all secondhand accounts. Joseph himself never recorded or we don't have any record that he recorded those revelations in any way. The only um contemporary contemporaneous records we have from Joseph is section 132 and some excerpts from William Clayton's journal. 
That okay. is all. If people say, well, you don't have anything from Joseph on this topic or that topic, if it's polygamy related, you're right. We don't. And, and it makes it hard. But, but there are enough people who remembered, and, and it's, it's a very consistent story once you, you uh, put them all together. And that's when I hope people will appreciate as they read my books. Okay. So let's go back to um, something you mentioned. You, you talk about how the Fanny Alger thing blew up. And I want to I wanna actually um, ask a question about that. Are you referring to the fact that um, Oliver Cowdery accused Joseph Smith of adultery and that created the rift? Is is that what you're referring to when you say it all blew up? What we know, and again, I've got all of these accounts in there. We don't have all of the details, but it appears that Joseph uh, asked Levi Hancock to perform a marriage ceremony, and his son Mosiah relates that. Um, again, the document is not perfect, but Todd Compton uh, and I both agree that, that a marriage per- was performed, a ceremony was performed. At some point, he is with her in a barn. And according to the accounts, uh, Emma finds them together there. And at this point, Emma is not accepting this as a, a legitimate plural marriage. In her mind, this is just Joseph stepping out on her. And we can understand how she would react. Um, obviously, she wasn't a party to the original marriage ceremony, I think we could say. So Joseph Smith is, is in a fix. And so he calls, and one account is it, at midnight, Oliver to come and, and help get this figured out. Well, Oliver shows up, and apparently he sides with Emma. So let me let me ask: When you say that Emma um, catches them in the barn, are we to assume that they were having a sexual relationship in the barn, or is that totally, um, you know, just speculation? Um, we the language would allow that interpretation, but does not demand that interpretation. And and I don't know. I do list Fanny as one of the twelve women that. Um, a marriage that was consummated by Joseph. I do list her based on that and a couple of other statements. So um, it's reasonable to believe that they were having a sexual relationship they, and that is what Emma was discovering. Very, very possible from, from okay. the accounts that we have. Yeah. And, and that's what one of the reasons for plural marriage, um, Sarah, maybe I should just mention this so we don't forget, but Joseph gave three reasons for plural marriage. One is to restore Old Testament polygamy restitution of all things. We've all heard that one. And in fact, if your friend asks you why he did it, that's the easiest answer to give because you don't have to give any new Mormon theology to understand the other two. The second one is they're noble and great spirits in the pre-mortal world waiting to come down to devout families. And and at least theoretically, plural marriage allows for bigger devout families in which these spirits can be born. The, The third one is the one we've already talked about that very few members have even thought about, but it is to allow all worthy women to have a husband in eternity. So, they can be. Do you personally believe that those three um, explanations of polygamy are valid, that Joseph Smith um, somehow received that information from God? Do you know they're all in section 132, but they're also in the accounts um, from the people who talked to Joseph. So it's pretty easy to document all three of those as the arguments Joseph was using then. Um, to, uh, to convince people that this was, was a legitimate practice. Okay. So, um, going back to, um, Emma, so they, they were discovered in the barn and Oliver Cowdery sides with Emma. And this, this actually kind of comes up later. I know that, um, when, when, um, Oliver Cowdery left the church, there had been some kind of an accusation made. Can you talk a little bit about how this stretches out and, how this kind of, and what's the timeline between 
the first discovery and then um, Oliver Cowdery's exit from the church? Well, we have a couple of things that are happening at that point. The Kirtland Safety Society is 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 uh, failing, and people are losing faith over that. Um, there's a limited number of people who know about Fanny, uh, know exactly what happened. There are a lot of people hearing rumors, and there's several different accounts. Some people say that a lot of people knew, and some people say it was just whispered. And But clearly, Oliver was affected by this. And he wrote a letter to his uh, brother, Warren A. Cowdery, that was copied by his nephew, Warren F. Cowdery, into a copy book. And we have a copy of the letter that was sent. And in it, he, he refers to the relationship with Fanny as a dirty, nasty, filthy scrape. Now, there's an overwrite there of affair, dirty, nasty, filthy affair. So you mean it, the word scrape was crossed out and someone... Well, it's an override, and again, I'm indebted to Don Bradley, who looked at this and figured out what the original word was, and I, I have all the photographs, and I've got permission from Huntington Library to publish all of them, and they're in my book. Um, but it was originally the word scrape, which doesn't carry the same connotation as affair does today. And I would argue back then the words were equal, but today they're not, and that's why I think it's important that the only word we can trace to Oliver is scrape. We don't know what the letter that was actually sent said. But uh, the original word that was written in the copybook is is scrape. Scrape. Do you know who wrote in the word affair? Is that a mystery? No, we don't know. It seems to be in the same handwriting as, as the rest of the text. And Warren F. Cowdery, the nephew, is the one who wrote the rest of it. But uh, I'm not an expert on handwriting, so I. It, it, I'm, so it would be speculation. My opinion is not very good with respect. But to it that, is so. your opinion that Oliver wrote the word scrape. Yeah. Okay. That was the original word. But then uh, there are other problems. But the, he ends the, the letter by saying, um, unless you will apologize for saying that I had misspoken, uh, we are two. And, of course, one of the big uh, emphasis of, of several scriptures and of Joseph was we should all become one. We need to be one together. And so Oliver is saying we are two, saying well, there's a big divide between us, Joseph. And then um, uh, we move into 1838. That's when this is written in, I believe it's January, but I'd have to go back and look. But Oliver is brought up to, to the trial, and there's nine allegations against him, one of which is for insinuating that Joseph was uh, guilty of adultery. And uh, that one is, I don't remember, they weren't all sustained, and I don't remember which, which was and which wasn't, but he was ultimately excommunicated. Um, and that was one of the allegations. I, I don't think it was sustained. I think it was for other reasons. He sold his property in Jackson County and a few other things. And so he's excommunicated at that point and, and of course, isn't rebaptized for another 10, 10 years or so. So I want to step out just for a moment and address an issue that I think is very, very important, and that is that many members today, because they're unfamiliar with this information, and it, and I think it's fair to say that probably most members of the church do not know um, that that's changing, definitely, but for many years have not known about these kinds of details in terms of polygamy. We have an expectation of leaders of the church today, and if there was any kind of scandal involving, you know, the prophet or one of the apostles, it would not fly, <laughs> right? As members of the church, we would not expect it, and I, I doubt it would be tolerated. So it's hard for members to go back into their own history, consider a prophet of God, and think in terms of, you know, 
close associations of the prophet accusing the prophet of adultery, that's unsettling to people. Do you have empathy for that? Or do you understand that, you know, that, 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 that our modern day come from makes it somehow difficult to reconcile that? And what would you say to that? Um, first off, Joseph, um, just months before he was killed, said, I never told you I was perfect, but there is no error in the revelations. So he, he's not backing away from any of the of the declared revelations that we have, and that would include, uh, I, sec- I think, Section 132, even though it obviously wasn't published at that point. Um, that I think in, in Kirtland, what happened there um, is very easy to misunderstand, and we're still trying to piece it together. But for someone like myself who believes, there's, it's easy for me to, to put the puzzle pieces together in a way that, that, that doesn't make Joseph any, any less worse than, than somebody like myself or something. He's not stumbling in a huge way. Um, his libido is not getting control of him. Uh, so, and, and again, maybe people will, will scoff at this and just label it apologetic nonsense, but I, and that's where I would say, well, if, if you want to believe the worst, look at all of the evidence because the, there is evidence there that supports him as a virtuous man, even there. Um, because if a marriage ceremony was performed, then, uh, it, it was a legitimate marriage. Okay. So let's, let's talk about Emma because, um, Fanny Alger, obviously, as the first plural wife, um, is the beginning of Emma's struggle with polygamy. Um, obviously, all the women listening to this, coming at it from the perspective of Emma, finding your husband in the barn with another woman would not be easy, whether, you know, whether or not it was revelation for God, from God or not, that, that that is a very tough thing to grapple with. Um, is Emma always opposed to, po- to, to polygamy? I know that um, there have been arguments that at some points she gives Joseph Smith permission and then she revokes it. I, I, there's a lot of back and forth there. How do you feel about Emma and her perspective? And, and, and what do we know about her perspective? Um, I love Emma. I, I think we need to be careful ever of criticizing her. She did stumble, but then we all do. And I think that, that there is, she will not have any problems in the next life. I think that uh, she was amazing in what she had to deal with and with what she did, was, how she handled things. The issue of polygamy probably being a little less uh, admirable. But the, the timeline there is important. Um, Emma rejected Fanny Alger in 1836. Um, she doesn't hear about what's going on. And then a guy named John C. Bennett shows up. And it's ironic because his timing couldn't have been worse. Joseph is secretly trying to expand plural marriage in Nauvoo. And here comes John Bennett seducing women. And John Bennett and, and Joseph Smith never were talking about polygamy. People portray uh, John Bennett as being Joseph's right-hand man. Not so. And I have a whole chapter on this, and I challenge anybody with to find some evidence that they actually that he was. But what he was doing is he was doing spiritual wifery, which was just one night stands, don't tell anybody. And and John so, C. Bennett, John was. C. Bennett was, and so people are hearing about these rumors of Bennett, and Bennett is an assistant to the first presidency, so they're thinking it's coming from Joseph. In the meanwhile, Joseph has secretly got a handful of people, maybe two, that are practicing plural marriage. 
and it creates a very uh, confusing situation. Bennett apostatizes, um, which is kind of fortuitous for Joseph because then he can deny Bennett's spiritual wifery, and at the same time, he's not divulging the fact that there is this restored eternal marriage polygamy that he has been secretly teaching to, to literally fewer people than Bennett was, was seducing and had in his circle, at least at that time in 1842. So there's no evidence to support that Joseph Smith taught the doctrine of polygamy to John C. Bennett and gave him permission? There's no evidence. Um, Bennett knew five of Joseph's wives. He gave seven names. Two of them we haven't validated. I think they're just wrong, but we just haven't found validation. So he correctly knew five names, but I think he got that information from Nancy Rigdon, but he could have gotten it from anyone. The problem is that after Bennett left Nauvoo, he wrote a letter saying he never learned about eternal marriage while he was in Nauvoo. This is a letter to the Iowa Hawkeye that was printed in December of 43. And Joseph never taught plural marriage except within the context that they could be eternal. And I argue that the uh, admission that he never learned eternal marriage was the same as he never sat down with Joseph and learned plural marriage. And if you look at Bennett's book and compare what he says uh, Joseph's teachings were and then look at what they really were, there's a total dissimilarity between all of them. But again, I'm pushing against a a traditional view, so you'll have to read the evidence, but just get into the evidence. And and I, I really think it's pretty clear John Bennett never once sat with Joseph and learned about plural marriage. Okay. Um, this brings up another question that I have about, um, the fact that I've read some authors that have provided, um, basically, uh, evidence that is printed in the times and seasons, letters that were written back and forth, that even while polygamy was being practiced, um, the general public of the church did not know that this was something that was, um, you know, a doctrine being taught by, by Joseph. And um, Hiram denies it in the times and seasons, writes a letter of the times and seasons. Is that correct? And also that, um, I'm not quite sure, but that maybe Brigham Young denied that this was being taught. Why deny if it is actually being taught? What was the reasons and the justification behind publicly denying the practice of polygamy while it was being practiced? Uh, when you look at the denials, and I do want to come back to Emma because we okay, didn't finish yes, the timeline. We didn't finish, that's right. um, but the denials are one of the, the big challenges for people because it, it appears that, that the church is saying we're not doing it, but quiet, you know, behind the scenes they are. And it's a legitimate claim. Uh, if you look at the actual denials, there's a lot of wordplay. Fon Brody uses the word circumlocutions, and others say it's verbal gymnastics. So they're they're trying to deny it without prevaricating, but they're clearly deceiving their listeners. Like Joseph would say, people say I have seven wives, but I can only find one. Well, okay, what does that mean? You know, he had at that point, you know, been sealed to probably 20 or 30 women when he said that. So uh, uh, the, the problem, though, is that bigamy was against state law. It wasn't, there were no federal laws against plural marriage until the 1850s. But the state laws were against bigamy. So if Joseph had said, yes, we're practicing bigamy, here comes the marshal. He's arrested and put in jail. It's that simple. Um, so there's an angel telling him, you got to practice it. There's a state law saying you can't. And in the meantime, God is also telling him, build a temple, send out missionaries. Joseph is really between a rock and a hard place. And uh, so the way they try to fix it is by using this fancy language. And, and I don't, it didn't work very well. People could read between the lines. People weren't that stupid. But it, it, it did create a lot of confusion. 
And then you superimpose on top of that the denials of Bennett's super, uh, spiritual wifery. And spiritual wifery is not a term that Joseph ever used to describe celestial marriage, except he, he used it as a, in criticism of Bennett on, on one or two occasions. I think we have him saying the words, but he never in introducing it used that as his terms of, so it was the, always celestial marriage or patriarchal marriage. So spiritual wifery comes from John C. Bennett and is only used in reference to John C. Bennett. Is that correct? The uh, the term actually is is prior to Bennett. Bennett brought it to to Nauvoo. Now the thing that creates more confusion though is that there are church members who pick it up and use it synonymously with Joseph Smith's teachings. But when you talk to people about what he was saying, he didn't use the term. And you can understand why, because for Bennett, there was no whiffery about it. There were no marriage ceremonies. There was no long-term commitment. It was just one night stands. You can have sex. You just don't tell anybody. And if you keep it secret, then it's okay. Joseph Smith taught, these are marriages, your husband and wife, you've got a responsibility to her. Um, Joseph did make sure that every one of his sealed wives was maintained in Nauvoo. A lot of them lived with other people and things of that nature. A few of them lived in the, the mansion house. But uh, there was a genuine obligation there. These women felt like they were his wives. And what's interesting, and I have an article that just came out in Mormon Historical Studies that follows the 35 women, and that's the number that I, of women I think were sealed to Joseph. It's Compton's 33 plus 2. Um, but not a single one of those women ever wrote anything negative about Joseph. Seven of the 35 left the church, or at least left the saints in Utah. Five of those left the church. Three of them joined other churches, and, and others just kept themselves aloof. But none of them ever later on, after they'd remarried and had experience with life and, and sexual relations, wrote back about Joseph saying that he had abused them or in any way this was a cover-up for illicit sexual relations or anything like that. Now, in, an interesting observation. That is an interesting observation. I, 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 let's go back to Emma and talk about, you know, finish that timeline because I think it is very relevant to many people who encounter the difficulties with Joseph Smith. They, they really want, they sympathize with Emma and the struggle that she faced with polygamy and also the fact that she was really vilified by Brigham Young afterwards. So continue on that timeline and tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I think Joseph kept her out of the loop um, through 1842. Now, Bennett published his, his letters and his books in the middle of 1842, and Joseph at that point could just deny Bennett's spiritual wifery and, and, and walk away with a good conscience, even though at that point, the end of 1842, there really were only, um, Joseph had his uh, about eight plural wives, um, but there were only three other polygamists, Vincent Knight, who had died, and then Brigham had one plural wife, and Heber C. Kimball had one plural wife. So by the end of 1842, there's not a lot of polygamy in Nauvoo, except Joseph has got several women sealed to him. Then in the early part of 1843... Uh, Wait, I, wanna, I just want to ask a question sure. really quickly. So of those eight, how many do you feel he had had sexual relationships with? One. One. Fanny maybe, maybe two. No. May um, these are sealed marriages I'm talking about. So okay. we're starting with Louisa Beeman, and that okay. one was a sexual relationship. It was a full time and eternity marriage, and we'll talk about the, yes. the two forms here in a minute. Okay. Um, but I believe all the other ones were uh, non-sexual, eternity-only sealings, but that's a polyandry question that we need to talk about. Um, okay, so you're not including Fanny Alger in that, in the one. Right. That's, that, okay, okay. So um, continue on. So Emma, my, did she know about that sexual relationship? Do you know? If no, she, she didn't. She did I'm, not I'm convinced know. she did not know. Okay. That's tough. Yeah. That's tough. Um, but what happened then in the spring of 1843, 
Um, and it's possible that Emma learned about eternity-only sealings first. Um, the timeline is a little confusing because the documents are internally inconsistent with each other on the, as far as the dating goes, but we have a report of Ruth Vos Sayers. Her husband was a non-member, and uh, Joseph stayed with the Sayers when he was hiding from the Missourians, and Edward really liked Joseph, but he didn't like his religion. Well, they're teaching eternal marriage in Nauvoo, and Edward tells his wife, Ruth, look, go be sealed to Joseph for the next life. You'll be my wife now, but for the next life, you're worried about this, just go be sealed to Joseph. So she approached Joseph, and according to the account, she sealed to him only for the next life. Eternity only is the term that I use in the books. Um, and Emma is supposedly there. So Emma may have learned about eternity-only sealings before time and eternity. Now, the wise of Beeman was time and eternity, meaning it was for this life, meaning sexual relations were authorized, and the next life. So I, I, this is really important, and I want to make this distinction. Was there a, a definite distinction in the actual ceremony that, that, was, that took place where it was distinguished time and eternity or eternity only? I mean, they, they made that actual distinction within the ceremony? They would have. And this is, this is a very good question because we have a couple of authors who have said that there is no known um, language of eternity-only sealings in any marriage in the 19th century. And that may or may not be true. I, I can only speak to the Nauvoo period. But the problem with that statement is that we don't have any of the language from any of the sealings from any of the Nauvoo marriages, except so, one. And So it's, it's, are you saying we don't have them or they have not been released by the church in our, as our, you know, I could the church have them or we really do not have them. I'm completely convinced that we don't have them. Okay. Uh, because this was really secret and we don't, none of these records were kept. I mean, there's been references to some log of all of the plural marriages there and stuff. I, I don't believe it exists. I, I think this is pure speculation. If you, if you study the time, where would they have written it down? And we have all of the books where, that you would have expected. So um, there is no language. There's no language of time and eternity except for one marriage ceremony, which was revealed by Joseph Smith for the, his sealing to Sarah Whitney. And Sarah was single. So it doesn't apply to the, the women who had legal husbands. So then why are you coming at it from the perspective? I mean, why have you decided that there was a distinction between time and eternity and eternity? Why do you feel that that is valid? Well, the document that I've just quoted is in the Andrew Jensen papers, and it, it tells about how Ruth Sayers was encouraged by her husband to go and be sealed to Joseph for eternity, but that she would retain, uh, be his wife here on earth. And it's very clear, it's a very clear account of an eternity-only sealing coming from a novel polygamist written down by Andrew Jensen. So it's quite a good source. But there are other sources, too, of people saying that, yeah, you need to be sealed to somebody, go be sealed to John Smith, uh, Joseph's uncle. He had women sealed to him only for the next life. So it's not just that one piece. There's, there's a number of other things, but it also fits into the theology. Why, why would you expect every marriage to be time and eternity when the woman has a legal husband and could be sealed just for the next life? And what we would anticipate is that they just would have changed the language, that we are sealing you for uh, eternity only or something like this. Okay, so go back to Emma at this point. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. Well, no, <laughs> These it, questions are coming up. <laughs> well, it's a complex topic, and this is why three volumes have been put together to try to under, help us understand. 
Um, but what I'm saying is that Emma may have at first, and there's a couple of other quotes that suggest this, um, that may have just learned about eternity only th ceiling. She may have thought for a time that that's all they were. But then in the spring of 1843, she learns that these are time and eternity. She participates in four. She gives Joseph Smith, Emily and Eliza Partridge, and Sarah and Maria Lawrence. And she puts their hand right on Joseph's and, and allows these plural ceilings to occur. So she's trying. Emma is really, really trying. And we have a, a late account where, where she says, you know, you, you've heard me talk bad about polygamy, but don't tell anybody I did it. I know it's from God, but I just, I have so much trouble with it is, is how she's quoted as a saint. But we have from Emily Partridge an interesting uh, comment, and this again is in the Temple Lot te uh, deposition, where she says that that first night after she is sealed, em Emily is sealed to, to Joseph, Emily stays with Joseph. They, they sleep together. They're in the same, same bed, the same room. And Emma's off in another room. And of course, for polygamy, that's got to be the hardest thing. Sharing a, a husband sexually would just be very difficult. And it was for her. Because after that night, she never let them sleep with Joseph again, according to the testimony. So here you see her just saying, I don't think I can do this. I'm, you know, she's trying so hard. And from that point on, she is, is really on the warpath. And this is why on July 12th, Hiram goes to Joseph, look, Joseph, dictate a revelation. I'll take it to Emma and we'll convince her that this is all legitimate. Because see, we're talking these four marriages occurred in May. But right off the bat, just within days of, of this these marriages where she's participating and trying, she just turns against it completely. And then we fast forward, you know, six weeks to July and, and we have Hiram saying, you know, I can get her to come around, give us this revelation. So she gets the revelation, he gets the revelation, goes to Emma, you know, the story, he gets a sound talking to, she's angry, she's bitter, doesn't work. But, but part of the story that people don't always know is the very next day, there's a crisis brewing. Um, in fact, it's not brewing. It's, 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 it's gone to flame here. And I think Emma is threatening Joseph with divorce. They meet together. William Clayton is called. And two things happen on that date. Um, we know that Joseph gives a lot of property to Emma so that if the marriage dissolves, Emma has some way to take care of herself or if Joseph is killed or something like that. The other thing that from circumstantial evidence I think is very clearly happening is Joseph promises to not marry any new plural wives. And how many does he have at this point? He is sealed at that point probably to 33 women. Okay. Now, I argue that at least 13 and perhaps even half of them are eternity only. Um, but again, the evidence isn't, isn't totally strong, but we can come back and talk about that. Um, but on the 13th of July, there's this agreement, and Joseph only is sealed to two additional women the, during the next eight months before he's killed. And one of them is uh, Melissa Lott. And Melissa, in her testimony at the Temple Lot, says, well, Emma knew all about it. She gave her permission. Now, we only have Melissa's word for it. But it, it, during that period is when Emma became softened to Joseph Smith. She became a matron for the Temple ceremony. See, only men had been involved with the Temple ceremony up until September of 43, um, as far as the endowment goes. And that's when Emma became, uh, her heart was softened. And she was the matron, you know, helping women you know, into the, the temple endowment uh, ceremony. She was the matron overseeing all of that. Um, and then the other plural marriage was to Brigham Young's um, sister, Fanny Young. And Fanny told Joseph and Brigham, she says, I don't really want to be married in the next life. I just want to be a single angel. And Joseph said, oh, you're talking foolishness. Brigham, seal her to me. And so it was clearly just a, a marriage so that she would have a, 
a spouse in eternity. And those are the only two plural uh, marriages that Joseph contracted after July 13th. So um, one of the things I want to ask is, when did the animosity start between um, Brigham Young and Emma? I mean, I know that Emma is struggling um, with polygamy. How involved were other people in that struggle? You've mentioned Hiram. Um, who else knew about this this struggle going on between Emma and Joseph? Actually, quite a few people in Nauvoo knew. Um, Emma had spies out uh, to keep Joseph away from his plural wives. And this would be late 1843, early 1844. Um, but also, it's interesting because outwardly, they lived a monogamous lifestyle. Several of the plural wives lived in the mansion with them. And and if there were relations between Joseph and these plural wives, it would have been overseen by Emma. You would assume that she was doing the first wife uh, presiding um, position. But outwardly, there were a lot of people who knew about these girls but didn't know they were plural wives. And the, the out, outwardly, it was just a monogamous lifestyle, which I'm sure is what Emma was seeking to to have. Other people who knew William Law was a confidant of Emma. And William Law later recalled a number of things about how Emma had no confidence in the revelation. Of course, the revelation is pretty harsh to Emma. It says she'll be destroyed if she doesn't come around. And so you can see where it might have been a bit difficult for her. But we have scattered references from people just saying that, yeah, we knew that she threatened divorce and she went to St. Louis. And, and that was because she was thinking about divorcing him and, and things. So it, it wasn't totally contained. Okay. So let me ask this question then about, um, about William Law, because at, at one point, is it true that Emma says to Joseph, I you have all these extra wives, I want an extra husband, and Joseph says, fine, who do you want? And she says, William Law. Can you talk about that? The, the relationship between Joseph Smith, Emma, William Law, and Jane Law, his, his legal wife, can be interpreted five different ways, okay. and they can all be documented. And okay. in my book, I, I, as I'm getting all the docu all the manuscript documents together, it's like there's five different stories here, and and you've got a, a documents. They're not all of the same level of credibility, but but uh, that particular scenario is one of the five. Um, William Law denied it outright. He said there was nothing about a swapping. Uh, husbands or wives or anything of that sort. He said, I never, my wife and I did not want to have anything to do with polygamy. And whoever made that up uh, didn't know what they were talking about. And that, that was William Law in a later uh, interview that he, he had. So um, there is a, a verse in section 132 towards the end, and I can't tell you what the number is, but there's, uh, there was something offered to Emma. And then it says, I, I'm telling her now, don't, it's not offered anymore or not don't partake of that. Um, people have, have theorized that it is polyandry, that Joseph is saying, okay, I'll give you another husband, you know, because polyandry is okay. Well, I'm saying that would have been adultery. That's what section 132 says elsewhere. I think it was just divorce. I think Emma had threatened divorce and Joseph saying, well, okay, I guess if that's, if that's the choices that we have and that in this revelation, Joseph is, is saying, don't do this. Um, don't partake of this divorce idea. Stay with Joseph and forgive him, but but stay with him. Okay. So you mentioned these five different sources. Um, so the version that that Emma wanted to take um, William Law as another husband, and I, I know the story of Joseph says, "Well, I'll take Jane," and you know, 
you don't find that as credible in terms of its source, it, the source of that story? No. In fact, I think it quotes Emma as saying um, that she wants William Law because he's such a cute little man or something like that. Uh, again, the, the problem is that that, that story was re related to William uh, decades later, and he just denied it outright. So here you have one of the alleged participants saying, no way. Is that the source of the story? Is the relating of that story? I mean, the documentation, when I... I'm asking there, where is the, what is the source of that documentation? I believe it's Wilhelm Weil. I discuss it in my book. And, okay. and Weil was just a, a tabloid reporter. The book, uh, I, I wrote to Richard Bushman when I was going through Weil's book, and I said, what do you think of this stuff? And he goes, you know, and when I was writing my book, Rough, Rough Stone Rolling, I just couldn't find anything in there credible. He doesn't even quote it at all. And that's okay. where so many of these allegations are coming from. I think some of them deserve to be at least entertained, and I do. But but that one, one of the participants says it didn't happen. And, and I think that's a More much credible. better source. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you talk about how Emma had spies out. Where does, I mean, what I'm, what I'm getting at here is I want to know when did this idea that Emma, you know, that Joseph Smith was going to have to go to hell and drag Emma out of hell. When did this start to really develop this, this animosity between Emma and then those brethren that lead the church after Joseph Smith? When did that start? Uh, you know, I, I think it originally was, over property because Joseph was the president of the church and Brigham is saying, well, yeah, but this is the church's property. And Emma's saying, well, no, it's, it's the Smith's family's property. And so you've got a huge uh, disagreement over who owns what. And, and you can understand Emma's position because, I mean, she doesn't have a husband at that point. She hasn't remarried Bitterman, but she needs some way to, to maintain her family. And she's got four children, well, three, and then one is born after Joseph's death. But, um, you know, she's worried about herself and she's a very resourceful lady. And, uh, you know, she's, she wasn't a passive personality at all. And, and so you can understand her, her position there. So you're saying it happened after Joseph died over, I mean, the, the fallout between Brigham Young and Emma? There is, there is one quote that, that says that even while Joseph alive, that she was trying to, to turn Joseph against the 12, which just could not have happened. Okay. That Joseph was too close to Brigham and to, to the 12, uh, at least several of the members of the 12 to, for that to have happened. But clearly afterwards it happened. And then there's kind of a funny, uh, story and, and it may be totally apocryphal, but, uh, there's a couple of things that recommend it, uh, that Joseph encouraged the 12 to marry his plural wife. Should anything happen to him to take care of them, they would only marry them for time, but they could raise up seed to him on earth, but they would be Joseph's in, in heaven. And so we have one story that, that Brigham sent a messenger to Fanny Alger who was living in Indiana, had been married to a, a real good guy, had a big family and well-respected, that uh, somebody actually went up and, and invited her to come be one of jo uh, Brigham Young's plural wives, which she declined according to the story in a, in a very nice way, not, not you know, uh, with uh, vitriol or anything. Um, so you can also imagine that perhaps Brigham felt like he needed to approach Emma, which I think would have sent her through the roof, but Brigham was <laughs> such an obedient, uh, servant to Joseph and, and so devout, you know, I, I wonder if that wasn't one more, one more negative, but the thing that really ticked Brigham off was when, and, and it didn't happen right off the bat in the 1840s, 
we have people meeting with Emma, and Emma is, is admitting that Joseph Smith practiced plural marriage. But then 1860 rolls around. Her son, who's 26 years old, Joseph Smith III, uh, they put together the, the reorganized church. And uh, one of its tenets is that Joseph did not practice plural marriage. And Joseph Smith III, uh, with uh, you know, an incredible uh, resource, just spends decades fighting this idea that, that his father was a polygamist and and doesn't I don't know that he does it very successfully, but he really puts a lot of energy into it. And essentially, Emma agrees with that. And then in her final uh, interview, which is in the spring of I think it's eighteen eighty seven. Anyway, um, she basically denies that Joseph had practiced plural marriage, and that just uh, the uh, the saints. Uh, and of course, Brigham was dead by that point. But but her stance that Joseph didn't do it when she knew better uh, was what I think set Brigham off. Okay. So let's go back a little bit. I want to address, um, you know, you, you set up the scenario where Emma's in the other room and Joseph's sleeping in, in bed with one of his, um, with Emily. Yeah. With Emily. So he must have used the justification that there was a, I mean, he must have been talking to Emma at least about justifying why it had to be sexual. I mean, there is a vast difference between, eternal wives and, you know, for time in this life. And, and as you've mentioned, it must be for the raising up of children. So, I mean, he must have justified that to Emma in some way. So I want to talk about those children. What evidences do we have of the children that come from those plural wives? Um, well, let me, let me uh, just mention one of the reasons, and it's in section 132, is that it is to multiply and replenish the earth. And there's at least one author somewhat recently has said Joseph Smith's polygamy was all about sex. I disagree. That was one of the three reasons, but it wasn't by any means the most important. I think for most Nauvoo polygamists, it wasn't about sex. It was about eternity, as we've talked about, that everybody needs a spouse. Okay, getting to the question of children, there are two documented children to Joseph's plural wives. Um, one of them is a, uh, we don't know the gender. It's to Olive Frost, and both she and the child died before the saints left Nauvoo. Don't even know the gender of that one. The second one is Josephine Lyon Fisher. And people dispute it. And in fact, you could dispute both of these because the documentation is far from perfect, but I think it's it's pretty reliable. But Josephine uh, came out west, married a guy named Fisher. They settled in Bountiful. And if you know Fishers from Bountiful, uh, it's my personal opinion that they have some of Joseph's DNA in them. Um, they've done DNA testing. Hugo Perigo, who's amazing and has, has looked at either seven or eight of the alleged children, um, all of them are negative except for Josephine. There is a correlation, but the problem is if you do the genealogy, there's cross-marrying between the two lines before Joseph and the plural wife, Sylvia Sessions. Okay. So we'll never know, is Hugo's, and I quote him in my book. We From genetic testing, we may never know regarding whether Josephine is truly Joseph Smith's daughter. In my book, I think I've got 19 children by name who somebody somewhere said are children of Joseph Smith. And like six or seven of them, Hugo Perigo has done DNA testing to show that he wasn't. But there... Uh, so there's no DNA evidence except for in two of these cases. Uh, except for one of them, and it's, okay. and it's and equivocal. And that was Josephine. Yeah. Okay. Jo right, exactly. And... 
So DNA testing has only disproven them. And I don't think any of these 19 are Joseph's children. But what I've learned is if, if anybody can make some kind of a claim back to Joseph, they're going to do it and they're going to believe it because there are families that have had apostasies and everything because of these alleged children. And now we have found out either through DNA testing or just by looking at the historical record, there's no way Joseph wasn't even in the area at the time the woman became pregnant. This kind of thing, though, the, the, we still have families that, that declare that, oh, yeah, we're pretty sure that she was Joseph's daughter, even though it's it was geographically impossible. So anyway, you can go to the website. I think I've got 17 or 18 there. I've added at least one more in the book um, of alleged children. You can look at the evidence. You can look at my comments on them, and, and maybe there'll be more. But it, but people are really anxious to tie back to Joseph. Is is one of the things that that I've so you so. mentioned the two, and I just I I, I don't mean to de- beat a dead horse, but do you believe that those two children come from Joseph? Uh-huh. Okay, but there will be pushback on both of them because the evidence is not perfect, and, okay. and I even quote some of that on Josephine. There's a couple of authors that don't think that, that the declaration is valid, and then Olive Frost. We've just got two brief references. Okay. And, uh, Do the people that disagree with you tend to be apologists that disagree that there were children by Joseph Smith? Um, in the two that I'm thinking of with Josephine, both of them are devout LDS. Okay. So they just feel like the evidence isn't conclusive and they'd prefer to believe that they are not children of Joseph yeah. Smith. One of them is just skeptical about everything. And that's, that's a, you know, healthy. You need skepticism. You need right. skeptics to, to keep you honest. <laughs> um, but in this case, I just disagree. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. Oh,
Mm-hmm.